Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. I am one of your co-ghosts, Ashley Darrow, joined, as always, by Doctor of Soul Tangling at the Licorice Guy. How's it going, John? Uh, you know, I I have been published in multiple journals, which I won't tell you the name of, and and I've also I'm I'm the worst person that you went to grad school with because I've got multiple <laughs> doctorates. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I've just been. I was working in the in the lab uh, late last night and doing a little bit of doing a little bit of soul tangling <laughs> as one does. I I literally thought you were about to start the monster mash. <laughs> I was I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight, and that's the movie Soul Tangler. And that's the the movie Soul Tangler. Um, <laughs> how are you doing? How how are you feeling? I I am ready I am ready to tangle some souls. I watched this movie three times in a single day, and now now I I feel like the god emperor of a desert planet. Uh, I am I am so ready for this. I mean, I I know this is a little off topic, but I can't help but feel that you know, if you listen to a podcast, um, in a way, what what are we? If now, if not now, a part of your soul, you know, through through your ears, which are close to the windows of the soul, we we have entered into your very consciousness, um, which makes makes again today's horror movie is in in essence about podcasting, um, and so we are uniquely suited to talk about it. I I I couldn't agree more. If if we've done anything in nearly three hundred episodes of our show, it's it's tangle our souls. Yeah, we are we are inevitably um, enmeshed both within both within our minds, the minds and consciousness of uh, the people who are kind enough to listen to our show, and of course with one another. Um, which means uh, it's time to further the entanglement process, the qu- quantum mechanics of the soul. Um, and it is time once again to ask Ash, my dear friend, to tell us what today's movie is about. The the following pricey was was designed to to trigger emotions and discourse within the liquid guy a- accidentally, I think. How and why do we allow the cop to speak within the context of horror, and what are our alternatives? The cop, as a figure of literature, has access to worlds and means we do not normally have access to. This includes access to locked buildings, medical histories, and a plausible knowledge of weapons, combat, and a steel will ready to face the horrors of the crypt head-on. Yet, even with the most basic left political analysis, we see through this. We see the copaganda latent in horror cinema play out before us. We allow the cop to be the protagonist because they are an agent of necropolitics. This is Achille Mbembe's necropolitics played out on screen. The sovereignty by way of power that arises in choosing who lives, who dies, and when it all happens. Does horror have alternatives? Are there careers that have similar material structures that are thereby afforded the status of our protagonist? The journalist, Castle, in The Soul Tangler, 
functions in a similar set of material languages. She has access to locked buildings, medical histories, and has a similar, plausible residency in the spaces of violence. And we needn't stop there. Examples throughout horror abound. Ripley from Alien is essentially a space trucker. Nada from They Live is a homeless man. Red Miller from Mandy is really just a guy who downs an entire bottle of liquid LSD. The psychedelic connection here begins to form a vision of a tunnel out of the forming haze of our moment. If we can find the heroes of horrific moments in truckers, the homeless, and a drug user, then we already have everything we need to defeat our monsters and discover a brighter day that's already here, just a bit out of sight. A soul, a body, a world seen from without two lonesome eyes. This is all we have until we realize that the window to the soul is defined not by its transparency, but by how it connects two otherwise separate worlds. Become enmeshed as we discuss the soul tangler. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. As always. Not, no, not, to, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I know you 100% agree on, on all of my, my takes about journalism and you have no dissenting opinions to offer. Uh, no, no, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I actually have a slightly bonkers take about the interrelationship between journalism and um, a low-budget genre film. Oh, well, we're gonna we're gonna have fun with that one in just a bit, and and maybe this is also uh, uh, the suburban Sasquatch and its consequences kicking in. Yeah, I I I mean I I think so. I did I don't want to say so, but I I think so. Um, where would you like to begin with this film? Question mark These films? Question mark. The formalism zone. I, I, I would like to start right off at the top by discussing the music of today's today's cinematic engagement. <laughs> yes, okay. Let's 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 start there. The expertly mixed sound. Um I, oh, what are your thoughts? Uh so so I, I have I have like a lot of mixed feelings here. And I mean like we're we're just gonna we're just gonna skip a lot of the bad movie discourse. Like Pat Bishow knows this is a bad movie. Right. There's no there's no secret here. You know, like this isn't we're not dealing with like a Neil Breen, like an artist who thinks they're uh, a lost genius or something like this is a B-horror movie. We, we, we got we, we get what we pay for here. But what I will say is like I, I enjoy a lot of the like late carpenter uh, horror synth score of this for its simplicity. Right. Like like a lot of the kind of like neo carpenter scores that we see in like the callbacks to 80s horror cinema that have been emerging lately. They're incredibly complex musical pieces. And then you go back to a lot of like the origins where the stuff is coming up in the late 70s and in the early 80s. It, it's 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 not so musically evolved. And there's a kind of like simplicity of the score that i really appreciate in a way this is this is this is one of the most deranged things i've ever said as a professional film critic the score for the soul tangler is closer to halloween than most of the neo 80s horror cinema yes absolutely and uh, that's not deranged at all it actually makes a lot of sense because and and i'm so sorry to interject here but but pat bishow if you wind up listening to this uh, I, I mean it. I mean it. I'm not. I'm not good at uh, at. Um, oh my god! What's the word I'm looking for? Irony. I'm not good at irony. So uh, uh, the score is very good for your film. 
yes, it is. Um, I I actually think there's probably some serious investigation to be done of like uh, electronica and synth music, it, specifically in the context of the horror genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and synth synth music is interesting because it has a couple of advantages, which is like its immediacy, the ease by which it can be manipulated in post production. Um, and the amount of affective range you can generate from like a simple electrical impulse, um, and yeah, I, I agree. I think that I think the score is a lot of fun. I think the score is. Uh, there are big chunks of this movie which, and we're going to get onto this, but I actually think this movie, the movie that I watched, is too long. Um, <laughs> well, don't and, don't worry. One of the three versions I watched was just right. <laughs> But like the score really does really does a lot of work in order to kind of like bind the emotional tonality of the film together. Mm-hmm. There's also a proletarian quality to electronic music that I think is often under discussed. You know, a lot of to, to make a lot of electronic music, especially these days, like your your smartphone, your laptop, these devices that you likely already have because of work or because of school are fully capable of, of making at the very least decent music with some simple free software. And there's another point that we should point to. There's another point that we should bring up. If we're going to talk about the kind of class politics of electronica and synth music, um, synth, synth music, I think specifically is well, even by the late eighties, um, was already becoming a kind of like somatic and, um, uh, musical shorthand for the future mm-hmm. and if there is one thing that clearly identifies popular modernism or the culture of the working class in the last half of the 20th century it is a concern with futurity yeah right? oh, absolutely that's such a good no, point yeah th- there's no nostalgia to this soundtrack you know where which you know where it would be like all organ sound effects and like you know uh, mm-hmm. dubbed screaming um there's there's a kind of urgency and forward-facing momentum which kind of creates an interesting narrative friction between the in a way very traditional plot <laughs> you know you're right i wish i wish more plots uh yielded to the same traditional values as the soul tangler more movies should look and move like this well like let's let's be let's be honest it's a it's Honestly, it's one of the oldest. It's one of the, it's an iteration on on maybe the oldest, um, you know, horror movie plot. It's the Mad Scientist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, like, it's, like it's, this, yeah. It's mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Yep. It, it in this like post sixties psychedelic moment. The you know the eighties when instead of like the couple of generations before you had the the positive transcendence of LSD in the eighties you had the kind of like negative transcendence the bad infinity of the mm-hmm. never-ending trip. Yes, absolutely. That is a brilliant way of putting it. I mean, it's it's kind of weird to see a film which is so clearly hallucinogenic and indebted to the 60s in the 80s when the drug of choice was not acid or LSD or peyote, but it was cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, that's just a cool detail. You're right. This is an acid communist film. <laughs> so... Uh, so so another another thing on the music I'd like to touch on is uh, so Pat Bishow also did the music video for a band called Hypno Love Wheel for their song Wow and and uh, Hypno Love Wheel also did uh, the song The Soul Tangler from the movie The Soul Tangler um, and and I had I had to look this up 
I had to look up this band after the fact. Um, on the DVD I have, there is Pat Bishow's music video for Hypno Love Wheels Wow. And I got to say, like, there, there, there's a strong psychedelic influence in that. Like, I now want to check out more work that Pat Bishow has done to see if this is kind of a through line through their entire body of work. Um, but also, like, happy to be introduced to Hypno Love Wheel. They've got some banger tunes. Uh, from what I could tell, Pat Bishow was also the drummer for a band called The Mosquitoes. Ooh, ooh, that kind of deepens our sonic analysis here. There's definitely like a strong musical through line through all of this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Some very interesting, yeah, the former former drummer for the Mosquitoes. Um, so basically, we need more horror movie musicology. I think is what we're saying. Oh, totally, totally. Is Isabella Van Elfren's book needs to be expanded upon? Oh, completely. Although um, it is a good book. So, while we're talking about sound, I want to talk about uh, uh, the magic and horror that is Crystal Sync. Ah, yes. Uh, so, let's, that- so, let's hop, hop in the Wayback Machine with me, everyone. We're going to talk about a wonderful time back when Sync Sound was annoying as hell. <laughs> um, so, if you watch this movie, one of the first things you're going to notice is there are some sound sync issues, right? Um shooting sound on film involves synchronizing the motor of the film, the motor that's carrying your film with the sound recording technology that's in inside of the camera, right? Or outside of the camera. Mm-hmm. If those two aren't in sync, it is extremely difficult to sync up audio and video post-production using film. We take this for granted now when we shoot on digital because the sync is kind of built in. And unless you have messed up your encoding, you're probably not going to encounter audio sync problems ever. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a problem of a bygone age of cinema. But another problem is uh, so Crystal Sync is like the gold standard for film sync. It's really good. It was kind of accessible at certain points depending on what your technology you were shooting on. Um, but there was another there was another kind of of audio sync, and it synced based on the wavelength like the frequency of electricity coming from a mains power socket in your home, right? So that was that was the signal to which the, the motor and the audio synced. And the problem with that is if you powered it with anything other than plugging it in to a household power outlet, your audio sync would be messed up, which is why every shot not shot in a building in this movie has some audio sync issues. And I think like, and, and, and just to say like, this isn't just to highlight a goofy error in a, in a B horror movie, but it is like those goofy errors are often like the living memory of filmic technologies, right? Like this, this isn't just like, oh, haha, you made a mistake, Pat Bishow. You should have used Crystal Sync. This is like by not using Crystal Sync, you give us a living memory of all of the different audio sync technologies that were available at the time. And of course, um, like technology is always embodied in its use so it's not just the living memory of technology it's a living memory of technique mm-hmm. right this is you if you watch you watch enough of this kind of boom b movie horror you basically watch people learn how to make movies in real time isn't that what clive barker said his experience in directing hellblazer uh, hellraiser was yeah, yeah right he didn't he didn't know what he was doing uh he didn't know the difference between various kinds of lenses and it's like, you know, instead of sitting back and doing the like, uh, audio sync problems, uh, what a loser. You can kind of go, actually, this is 
you're not just watching the evolution of the of the technology of art, but you're watching quite literally in real time somebody acquire the techniques of art. Oh, absolutely. And and I think the the comparison to Hellraiser here is very apt because like I kind of consider Hellraiser to be a B horror movie. It's just a B horror movie that became so critically and commercially successful it can't really wear the mantle anymore. Like like the the, the scene where all of the Cenobites are standing in somebody's living room in front of the blinds. Like that is the most B horror shot possible. You put your monster wherever you can put it. You know, and they're just like they're just in a living room just standing in front of the window. And it's it's just so dorky and so silly, like like that that kind of shot is at home in Carnivore and Soul Tangler and all of these movies. And so I think are are the, the perceptive distance between B horror and the kind of like, you know, flagships of horror cinema isn't quite as far as we'd often like it to be. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, that that's just the kind of post hoc rationalization of critical consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Um, okay, well, I, I've mentioned this already, but can we talk about the versions, the multiple versions of this? Yes, yes. Let's let's dig in to the to the two main versions of of this wonderful movie. And you can explain the three versions that you watched. Yes. So so there's the theatrical cut, which is 90 minutes long. Uh, uh, there's also a theatrical cut with director's commentary, which I highly recommend. And I do treat those as unique versions and not just audio tracks because you're not really watching the same movie, are you? Um, and then there's the director's cut, which is a crisp 62 minutes long, and it is fundamentally a different film. So so how do we how, so how do we understand the fact that there are essentially three iterations three kind of restagings of the same thing so i think the first the first thing to pick apart is that like why are movies 90 minutes long is is kind of a question why 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 do all movies have to be 90 minutes why are movies chopped down to 90 minutes why are movies bloated till they reach the 90 minute line and that's early on in the studio system studios and distributors you know like through marketing research kind of figured out that audiences were feeling like they got their money's worth at around 90 minutes and so that's why that standard exists it has nothing to do with art or you know art retroactively forms around this kind of corporate money making decision and we kind of see the consequences with that play out really grimly in the Soul Tangler, right? Like, there is so much padding in this movie. And, like, Bishow is even, like, like in the director's commentary, Bishow is like, yeah, this scene was padding. Yeah, this scene was padding. Yeah, this scene was padding. Because you needed to add 30 minutes of padding to, to reach a length that you could distribute. Yeah, the middle reel of this film, uh, honestly, I was like, we could just get rid of this. Yeah, and, like, like there are so many scenes of Castle, our, like, female protagonist journalist, smoking or pulling yeah. out a cigarette or looking for her cigarettes and like but doesn't one character just go i can't believe you're gonna smoke already <laughs> it's like, yeah yeah well it, she needs to have something to do <laughs> and and when, when I, I i first watched the theatrical cut and i was like is this like a fetish film thing is this like a, we're, we're sneaking in those in lieu of putting in boobs for some reason and we can kind of just like have like this kind of like femme fatale smoking kink going on but no th- those were originally shot to be insert shots you know, so like an, another character would be talking, we'd cut to Castle just taking a drag and then cut back to that character talking. But then they every single one of those shots had to be added into the movie in order in order to reach a 90 minute length. So distributors would take the film. 
And so it's just it's just straight up padding. It's using every like there was literally nothing on the cutting room floor. Yeah, and you can kind of tell. Um, and so so I guess this maybe you can talk a little bit about the distinction between the director's cut and the theatrical cut. For the record, the theatrical cut was the one that I saw. Yeah, so the, I mean, like the big distinction is all of that bloat is gone. Like that's literally that's literally thirty minutes of your runtime cut out of the movie. One third of the movie was cut away because one third of the movie is just unnecessary filler shots, right? Like to to reach an arbitrary time length to to sell this movie. The sixty two minute version of this film is like really fast paced, really crisp, full of a lot of cool special effects, a lot of interesting ideas. And you don't have to spend 30 minutes kind of just watching people putz around to get to the good moments. You know, yeah. it, it functions so much better as a movie. And it's kind of, again, it like in the same way that this movie brings up conversations of technology and technological use in filmmaking, it also reminds us like how the 90 minute line isn't always beneficial, right? Sometimes movies just need to be shorter. Sometimes movies need to be 854 hours long. Like, like the, the, the 90 minute line doesn't exist for our, for ourselves, the viewer. It exists for corporate bottom line calculations. I mean, historically and like artistic convention is just that it's convention. Right. Uh, And so this feeling of going, Oh, this movie is quote unquote too short. Um, is kind of a problem which I think has seriously damaged the reception of like short film yeah. as a, as a form, where it's mm-hmm. become this thing which no longer gets kind of wide street wide releases or kind of a mass audience in front of it, and so that kind of actually slows the uh, slows the career of, of directors, of kind of technicians, of DOPs, um, mm-hmm. like because you have to start in short film. But the problem is. Nobody watches short film because there is no distribution route for short film outside of very select routes. Um, so yeah, I think it's cool. I think it's cool that the director's cut in this case is actually making making the film shorter, which is usually the complete opposite of what a director's cut is supposed to do. And and usually, like like to be honest, like usually I really kind of hate director's cuts because they're like you're you're absolutely right. They're the opposite. They're like an extra thirty to forty five minutes of just bloated stuff. I wish I didn't have to see. And, and this this is this is like the director going like no 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 we can make this movie better by making it way shorter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a point in the notes which I I kind of feel like I need you to flesh out a little bit. Um, can you talk about Dune? So this this is another fantastic little thing about this movie that um so I I have the Arrow Video uh, DVD release of this that they did with Bleeding Skull, mm-hmm. um, which and again like. I I love or not Arrow Video, sorry, um, Agfa, the American Genre Film Archive. We have um, talked uh, about our deep love and respect for Agfa many times. Yeah, it, like like Agfa, Arrow, Vinegar Syndrome, Bleeding Skull, like all of this stuff. Like there was something weird. Like the, these these people are literally preserving proletarian film history. You know, they I, they they may not necessarily see themselves in those terms, but like that is very much what is happening here, and um. So, so the, 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 the DVD has all kinds of, you know, cut content behind the scenes, the director commentary and the director, the director's commentary starts off kind of charming because Pat Bishow is like, I have no idea why anyone is watching this. I have no idea why they're re-releasing this DVD and why they asked me to do a director commentary, but whatever, here it is. (laughs) (laughs) I respect that a great deal. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was going to say like, I found it to be so refreshing 
you know because it's like okay like a b-horror director that knows exactly what they made great like that's that's phenomenal i mean come on sometimes it's just a job right sometimes it's just a job or you just did it because you needed to make some money and this is what came out <laughs> so there there's um there, there's a cut scene where uh our our evil dr lupeski our evil uh, uh mad scientist uh, 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 possesses a corpse with his soul. He does a soul tangle, um, and you see the corpse like jump up in bed, and and and, and he shouts, "I'm the Keysatch Hazaract." <laughs> so so again again we we return to Dune here on Horror Vanguard. There is just another weird B horror movie that that exists within the Dune universe. Uh, I think we the actually that yeah. I I think we actually have to recognize the impact of uh frank herbert's psychedelia on a whole generation of low-budget filmmakers mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely and like you know there's, there's so much to say about dune but the, the kind of like the thing that occurred to me the second i saw that cut clip is i was like there was literally no way that that ai art bots could have ever produced anything nearly as interesting and as as fun and as cute as that moment yeah that that is that is fundamentally outside of the scope of what any ai art thing could ever do and it's also a reminder that the whole point of ai art is to if you don't have to make art anymore that's just another shift you could do at burger king yeah i well this is the point right the ai can't make art yes absolutely sorry (laughs) yeah that's 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 just that's that's just just that's just a fact it's just a fact uh, you can get mad at that. All it can do is provide uh, copies and kind of steal. Um, that's all it can do. Um, and we deserve better. Yeah, we, we deserve a, a uh, I don't know, more, more concepts from Dune should be applied is, is what I'm going to say. <laughs> that's my attitude towards AI is I have a very Dune attitude towards it. Uh, yeah, but Larry and Jihad, uh, they made some good points. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, they're, 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 there's a sect of psychedelic space nuns that kind of got it right, is is the <laughs> takeaway here. Open AI is the mind killer. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so true. Uh, as, a, as a final point in our formal zone, should we shout out the uh, practical special effects work here? The, the 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 effects work in this movie is like the the single like if we, if we want to talk about like formalism and in, in the sense of like horror is an artistic set of conventions with agreed upon standards the the corpses and the zombies and the little brain monster in this are like a league above everything else in screen here like like they, that, that could have been a little AAA brain monster release. with eyes on stalks I love that little guy. Yeah, he was adorable. I kind of want him in a little like fishbowl just sitting next to me all the time. Uh, and so I've made I've made a bunch of corpses in my time. Prop corpses. I want to underline that prop corpses that were fake and made of plastic. That that needs to be clear. Um, <laughs> but I've I've made like 50 plus and like the ones in this movie are just like I know how much time and effort goes into making a corpse look that rotted and that disgusting and that not like a Halloween store skeleton. Yeah, some good goo, some good goo in this. 
And it's just, it's the, the, the grotesque attention to detail in these corpses, the, the way the flesh slews and rots off the blood, the, the varying levels of caked and necrotizing gore. Like, like the, the, there's a, there's a loving attention to detail. Like, like there, there's, you know, like whoever made those, like you, you could feel the love of the craft, you know, mm-hmm. com, coming off in that, like. Yeah, I don't know. Like when I saw when I saw those, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like that's like necromantics, you know. Like we're we're like dealing with like some serious like sicko art here. This is fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. Some real some real good stuff. But with that said, uh, uh, shall we shall we send our souls into the corpse of the discourse zone? I think we should do some soul tangling. Let's let's do it. <laughs> So where do you want to start our discourse here? I think we should talk about we should talk about journalism. Um because once again we're dealing with a film which uh, has a small town journalist heroically finding out the truth. Um and I suppose we should kind of ask what do you what do you think of this this is like the second time. It's actually multiple times we've. This has come up in the course of doing the show, but the second time in very recent order, where we're doing a movie where like, it's all about a journalist who is trying to expose the truth of something, and yeah, what like what do you, what what, do you, what is your take on how genre cinema deals with journalism as a practice? So I think I think the first thing I want to tease out is like exploring some of those ideas that I laid out in the Precy, right? Like it's always it's it's always curious to me how we select the kind of occupational background of our protagonists and and the the very material reasons for those selections. Right? Like and I think there's a reason why very few horror movie protagonists are K-12 educators. Very few horror movie protagonists are speech pathologists. Very few horror movie protagonists are, I, I, I don't know, carpenters, right? Like, I think there are there are very material like reasons why we make these narrative selections, and they have to do with who has access to what in society. And journalism is just one of those careers where, like, as as an audience, we're not going to question it if a journalist is breaking into a building to try and get information. Just like we wouldn't question it if a cop was breaking into a building to try and get information or a detective, right? Like, and I was also thinking a lot of Johnny Nada from They Live, mm-hmm. right? Like, we don't we don't question a lot of his actions because because of course a homeless person would be sneaking around or kind of doing you know these like light criminal activities. You know, it fits into broader not not only like material languages but like our conceptions of different careers and their purposes. But I know you have a much spicier take. Well, I don't. I don't know if this is. I don't know if this is a spicy take. Um, but I think we'll there see how is, much space you fold. I think there is a connection here, right, between a like generally genre film doesn't tend to attract uh, a more kind of like right wing artistic sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're quite right. There's only certain kind of positions in society which allows you to have power, allows you to, you know, get access. Um, and I think, if anything, the interest in journalism is interesting 
<laughs> the interest in journalism kind of speaks to a sense of political alienation fundamentally and a lack of political agency. Journalists are not a kind of, there's no, there is nothing inherently kind of revolutionary about them, obviously. But what there is, is um, an ability to, or ostensibly an ability to engage with the truth. And I think genre film uh, of this kind also appeals to people who recognize, even in the most inchoate ways, their, their fundamental political alienation under capitalism. Um and so, yeah, obviously then you're not going to have cops, but you are going to have a a sort of like... The thing that I was thinking about, let me try and put this another way. The thing that I was thinking about was Resident Evil. <laughs> I was I thinking... I saw this one coming. Yeah, go on. I was thinking about Resident Evil a lot uh, for reasons we don't have time to get into. But like, what is the plot of almost every Resident Evil film? The plot is... We're going to team up with a journalist and we're going to expose the truth. And that is a fundamentally naively liberal conception of actually how does power work. And I think the interesting thing about genre film is that it takes this naive liberal conception of how does power work, how does truth work, and subjects it to a kind of like deliberate complication that it can never quite overcome because not enough communists make this kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think that's really compelling, and I think I think that kind of that speaks to something that might even be an inherent problem with navigating putting careers on cinema and using careers as synecdoche, right? Like because the, these career selections are just shorthands for for onboarding the audience into a series of plot events. You know, like like another another one that we can consider is like the ragtag group of teenagers. Like, of course, they'll be breaking into the spooky old mansion to find clues. Of, of course, they'll be setting up little traps. That's what teenagers do in horror movies. You know, we have we have these these cinema linguistic shorthands, and those are also bound to the same like systems of oppression and class systems that we have in the real world. Right. Like they are kind of constituent elements of each other. Yeah, exactly. Um and I think I think there is a desire to find a kind of truth, right? But there is also an inability. Like the whole point of these films is the journalist finds the story, but it doesn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. Right? She gets the story. She gets her column at the local paper. But like nothing fundamentally is altered, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the the same system that produces Dr. Lubisky and his soul swapping experiments uh, gets to continue on existing and operating as it does. And and I think like the the fundamental thesis there is that like it's not a systemic problem that the system produces bad scientists. It's a bad apple style approach to these issues. Well, yeah, that's that's always the point, right? The journalist yep. function is to expose the truth and then reinscribe a kind of normality. Mm -hmm. Um but like, if we come to talk about our good doctor, I think this involves necessarily occluding the history of medical experimentation, um, you know, the history of the asylum that Foucault writes about. This idea of like how are how are the mad treated, and what are the discourses of power involved in? None of that is none of that is questioned, right? And so I think it's very interesting that we've had multiple genre movies which are 
deeply invested in journalism as a device for truth, but not a, a device for any kind of like critique. And this is this is I think an area where the soul tangler, the soul tangler. I really, really, really love our career. Sometimes I love what we do here <laughs> on the show because I get to say things like what I'm about to say, and it's just, mm, it's a wonderful life. Um, the soul tangler, I think, departs slightly from from the tradition that that, that we're kind of exploring here in cinema. Because like one of the major problems with, and this is like a classic Foucault point, this is a point from Mad Liberation, this point kind of pops up all over the place, is that the, the kind of psychological apparatus is, is not written by its subjects, right? It is not people who have madness that are writing the DSM, you know, like, like, uh, and, and this isn't always entirely true, but it is predominantly true that these systems and these structures are built by a, a you know, like an ableist overclass, right? Like, like as these systems often are, and we can find other examples of this all over the place. Gender strictures are made by the gender overclass, you know, like, like this is, this is kind of the classic formulation and here in the soul tangler, like, so Castle's father was killed by Lubeski's soul tangling experiments and Lubisky herself, or I'm sorry, Castle herself rather, is subject to those experiments in kind of the last third of the film. Like real three kind of kicks off with her being injected with with amphorium, which is soul tangling juice. And she has her first soul tangling trip. Um, and so she she herself kind of like goes from the state of like the 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 journalist who's here to demonstrate that these shocking truths are just aberrations from an otherwise normal system to an actual subject of the thing she's investigating, which doesn't absolve or delete the one side of that reading, but it does give it a layer of complexity. And you, listener, if if you enjoy giving weird horror movies layers of complexities that no one ever intended, you can go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, where for less than the cost than experimental research-grade psychedelics, you can support our show. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Operators are standing by. Yeah. With support from viewers like you. Um, Call in now to receive a free vial of Emporium. <laughs> yeah, well, well, let's let's talk about the psychedelia of this. Let's talk about the mechanics of the quantum mechanics of the soul and soul tangling. Yeah, how many how many tangled souls can dance upon the head of a pin? Um Really, like how, how? Of course, we can just be like, "Oh, it's it's very Herschel Gordon Lewis. Oh, it's very Victor Frankenstein." But like, how do you think is best to kind of read this discursively? So, so the the, the thing that I would want to kind of play with here is that like. What Soul Tangler is doing that I think is really interesting. There are a lot. I can think of a lot of horror movies where the basic concept is our protagonists do something that allow them to die and come back to temporarily. Right. I I think about uh, maybe the classic example of this is Flatliners. Mm -hmm. Right. Like like we we temporarily gain access to death and then we're exposed to the consequences therein. Um, However, what I think is interesting about the Soul Tangler is we, we, we kind of see an interesting process happening before us, right? Because one of the, like, 
a hallmark effects of psychedelia from a left point of analysis would be ego death right it's the kind of dissolution of the self as this like lonely isolated thing from the rest of existence and it is to to borrow language from this film it's an entangling of one's soul with the, the greater spirit around you you know to to use kind of like i don't know maybe a little bit troublingly close to new agey language here um and i think what's kind of like playing out in this movie is we're kind of seeing like that moment in a like proto state of capture you know because lubeski isn't using his soul tangling sauce for some kind of greater liberatory purpose he's not using it to like do i guess like metaphysical consciousness raising or conscious or like you know consciousness expansion rather you know, like like he's doing it specifically to bolster his ego. He's absorbing souls to gain from them. You know, he he's digesting the people around him. It's a consumptive practice. You know, I, I can see a version of the soul tangler where tech CEOs are soul tangling the souls of great artists in order to to better code apps that sell faces to police or something. Well, I I actually um i totally agree and i saw a, a kind of lot of resonance with i think the distinction here is the difference between consciousness raising and medicalization absolutely so, yes so I, it made me think a lot about um mark fisher's work with plan c and like how do we deal with the our kind of the existential kind of problem of existence under like capitalism um, which is a collective and social problem, regardless of what any, of of what we are kind of told. That's a that's a social problem. It has uh, neurological and biochemical. Uh, it plays out neurologically, and biochemically for a lot of people, and so medication is obviously enormously helpful. But this is not the same thing as um, actual consciousness raising right which is about the the removal of the um capitalist individualism individualism from ourselves right uh, mm. this is what our doctor is he is a he is a good psychic capitalist um yes absolutely you know which is constant accumulation and constant expansion of the self whereas um you know a non-medicalized form of consciousness raising is about the expansion of a kind of collective becoming a collective identity um so yeah i th- i think i think your point is really strong and i think this this idea of like reading soul tangling is like we are always already entangled in one another's souls right <laughs> yes you know simon critchley talks about this as uh, in terms of ontological indebtedness right to to be born to be a subject in the world is to be in debt to one another because otherwise you would not live Right when you when you're born, we are we are de- so dependent on one another, and you know that process of like self-realization that psychoanalysis takes you through is this idea of, in a way, the kind of cutting of that dependency to become a coherent subject. But really, the most powerful modes of solidarity rest in the realization that coherent subjectivity is not antithetical to dependence interdependence and the tangling of souls which is you know finds its expression in solidarity i think that's such a beautiful point 
and this is this is one of the ways that Soul Tangler really surprised me. Um, I, because like based on the construction of this movie, I, I was really expecting a much more predictable formula. Like I, I was expecting our mad scientist would begin bo- essentially body snatching, and, and in in a way that would like not become so it, it, it in the course of this movie it winds up becoming a a kind of like meta commentary on medicalization the the psychological apparatus and how that's linked up with the state uh the mm-hmm. the professionalization and formalization of all kinds of psychic discourses how psychedelics uh then and especially today have been thoroughly captured by capital and and twisted to capital's ends i was expecting this to follow more like a he he steals bodies and kind of joy rides them and it, it plays more along like gender lines and issues of perversion and his own psychological development but it was really refreshing to see it kind of like escape that orbit and land on something much more complex oh yeah i could i couldn't agree more um what do you think about how this film deals with the question of the soul <laughs> Well, today in our discussion of of Bischow's The Soul Tangler, we are going to answer your deepest religious, theological, and philosophical questions about the nature of human existence. I, I think we can knock that all out in the park in the next 15 minutes or so. Um, I can't imagine that that taking longer. I can't imagine that taking uh, uh, the entire human endeavor. <laughs> um, so, oh, go no, on, go on, go on. Go on, go on. <laughs> okay. After you. Um, well, well, the first thing—the first thing I want to jump in is—is is talking about the pineal gland, mm-hmm. right? Because, like, in that deleted scene, we, we get the Dune reference, and we see we we see very clearly some kind of like connective through tissues for Dune, even if it is just pe- people who are aware of and enjoyers of Dune playing with loosely similar ideas. However, the thing that this is directly indebted to, right? Like the thing that the Soul Tangler links back to is H.P. Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator. Mm-hmm. Like and and not the movie Reanimator, to to just to just to be interestingly clear, because according to the director's commentary, Pat Bischoff stated that they were unaware of the film Reanimator until after they finished making this movie. Which could yeah sure okay I'll I'll, I'll take that I mean like the, the, it's 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 not like H P Lovecraft's Reanimator wasn't all over culture already already anyway. <laughs> so Ash there you go. sounding skeptical. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe a bit, maybe a bit, but not dramatically. Not, I'm not, I mean, like, because like the, the key text here isn't reanimator the movie. The key text here is reanimator as written by H.P. Lovecraft. Yes, absolutely. And, and so, so again, like this prize out like a lot of, weirdly, this gets us, this gets us towards the question of, of the soul and human nature, right? Because like, if, if Bishow at all are intentionally, unintentionally remixing reanimator, Right, H.P. Lovecraft's one of his most iconic tales that that has influenced so much of cinema that ripples out from that moment and and literature and art. We 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 have to we have to be if that that gives us a that gives us a strange lesson, right? We have to be much more careful with how we uh, interrogate issues of the ego and the psyche and the soul, the spirit. However, we, we want to talk about these things. Because the linguistic frameworks we're using, the philosophies that we're using, the theologies that we're using, were are, are not are not ex nihilo, right? Like they they were designed by human endeavors for specific ends under specific circumstances. 
you know, we are using a gifted tool set to try and excavate one of the core ideas behind human existence. Mm-hmm. And we need to be very careful with how we how we employ those frameworks. Otherwise, we'll wind up reproducing, even if it's subconscious, all of the discourses that we're given. And I think a big problem is the idea that the soul is in some way a physical thing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's the big problem. So it's Descartes who first postulates the, the pineal gland as the point at which mind and body, uh, soul and body interact. Because the, yeah. the the issue is, of course, uh, physicalism versus material. Uh, physicalism versus dualism. Right? Descartes a dualist. There is there is the physical mm-hmm. world. There is there is the body. Um, it, interestingly, theologically, this has often been the case as well. Uh, this is why traditionally, uh, particularly in Christianity, you know, you don't talk about uh, dead bodies. You talk about dead remains. You talk about remains mm-hmm. of people because that which makes a body, a person, the soul, is no longer present in death. Um, in a way, the soul is the uh, accumulation and and uh, accretion of the action and activity of the body and consciousness. So when that's gone, the soul is uh, the soul is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a question: Then, is it possible to come close to a materialist conception of the soul without falling into the trap of biological essentialism? Go on. Here's here's the. It wasn't in the journalism section. Here's the spice. Here we go. And I think, I think the way through this is to try and strip the concept of the soul of some of its kind of metaphysical and theological niceties. Um, uh, and th- the best way that I can think of, kind of off the top of my head, is through. Uh, um Marxists, the Marxist conception of species being, um, on one hand, and on the second hand, if we have a concept of a soul or of a kind of, then it things like collective memory, the long memory, history itself, comes close to it, right? Mm-hmm. So the point is not to be like, oh, well, the soul is just some theological abstraction that has no real relation to human, you know self-understanding but i think um you know acknowledging the uh i suppose if you're going to put this in materialist terms the question is do you do you come down to a kind of humanist or non-humanist philosophical basis i think quite a lot of people on the left like non-humanism because it's philosophically quite interesting Mm -hmm. um which and so this conception is like actually there isn't really anything that makes humans all that different from any other kind of animal um and thus that should kind of reorient all of our thought and and kind of theorizing and then you have a humanist tradition of thought obviously i i probably lean more towards that because i think people are cool <laughs> generally <laughs> uh but like i think that's how you try and solve this without doing that thing of like i'm gonna cut open your brain to see where the magic ghost comes in <laughs> And I mean, I, I think this this does tie it into to really troubling discourses because a lot of the bioessentialist approaches to the soul are are bound to turn of the century fascism and phrenology and all of those discourses, right? Like the, the the same scientific endeavors that are attempting to figure out what your ghost weighs 
are are close cousins to phrenology and race science and bioessentialism and gender all of the kind of like worst right-wing impulses right because if you can measure the weight of the soul the logical conclusion is that then you can instrumentalize that for a bunch of terrible shit yeah and of course there's always a certain class of people that don't have that that don't have yes. a soul mm-hmm which and is weirdly other- a thing that Dr. Lupesky touches on in, in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is which, true. Which is, so, so okay, the, the, there's a scene we've kind of not talked about. Uh, and it's it's a scene that's kind of like, I don't want to say infamous because this is Soul Tangler, but like there's a scene that's infamous intra Soul Tangler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's the scene where everybody thinks the audio sync got really, really messed up. But it's actually just a really long J cut. Uh, uh, Lepesky is arguing with the head uh, of the clinic that he he's doing his evil soul stealing experiments at, and that that overlays him currently doing an evil soul stealing experiment. Um, and then through, through through the course of that, he mentions that like, oh, scientists didn't used to believe that women have souls, but now he can prove different through science. And, yeah, and yeah. I think, I, I mean, like one like. He, the pesky is the most like academic man TM I have ever seen. <laughs> Did you know that I have proved that women are real? I have five PhDs and yeah, I, you I've should sleep a, with me. I've got a PhD in feminism and I've proven <laughs> women are real. And like, but but the way the way that he he goes about exploring that, I find to be really interesting because we see the kind of like patriarchal instrumentality of the what does the soul weigh discourse, right? But, but because he he's le- legitimizing the existence of this gendered underclass by way of proving it using a like patriarchal hegemonic perspective, you know, like he's like, oh no no, I, I found out that they are actually people based on our metrics and our definitions. You know, like, like it just winds up reinscribing all the same oppressive discourses. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing that's worth pointing about here is the link. Uh, the logic of the soul tangling is based on the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the eye is the, is quite literally the window to the soul. Um, and this puts the concept of the movie camera in a sort of troubling mm-hmm. situation. Yes, here we go. Uh, y- if you have watched Soul Tangler, you are in some ways I- entangled with the soul of Pat Bishow. <laughs> um, you, we, we all are now, and there's nothing that we can do about that. There is... Art is a kind of way to achieve a sort of immortality. You become... Mm-hmm. You're, you're trapped there, right? That's... In in some ways, it's it's an inescapable part of who you are as an artist, as a director, as a filmmaker. Pat Bichau is partly the soul tangler. You have you have the it, it, what is a movie camera? Uh, Zika Vertov. The 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 eye. It's a mechanical eye. It's an eye that can do things that can that that functions as a window into a soul far greater than any single human beings. Right? It can do things that physiologically human eyes can't do. But it's still an eye, right? It's still a window into a soul. I think that's such a that's such a wonderful point. It's it's a kind of explore what's what's going on here, right? Because like we 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 can view 
becoming immortal in, in the sense of I, I don't I don't care to remember their name that billionaire that's trying to look fourteen forever or whatever who ju- who just looks like a mid forties man who's had a lot of plastic surgery and body work mm-hmm. uh, so fail on on your part dude or like Peter, Peter Thiel's blood drinking and like all, all of this all of this nonsense right like we we can we can take the kind of like a, a teleologically capitalistic immortality. You know, where the, where the goal is to become some kind of like feudal overlord eternal. Or I think weirdly, like, you know, like like the Bishows and uh, Lance Laurie and kind of like the other creative engines behind <laughs> the Soul Tangler. Like we're having we're having this fun little conversation here because in 1987, a, a bunch of people got together and were like, let's make a spooky movie. And, and now here we are, you know, quite nearly four decades later. You, using this film as kind of like a discursive vehicle to to do everything from discuss contemporary political issues to to like wax philosophic on the nature of the human soul if we can say such a thing exists you know like and and is that not like a, a beautiful and and deeply positive immortality right that you could create something that in turn doesn't just fulfill an endless capitalistic promise for nightmares eternal but nevertheless like plants this seed that that sprouts a little forest over time mm-hmm. you know there's there's something there's something utopian in pat bish as the soul tangler 1987 <laughs> that that's that's the point that we think i think we have to end it on that's the point that we have to end it on and like that isn't like and like we talk a lot about this this kind of low genre low budget genre film these b, b movies and like so often they get reduced to going, ha ha, they're not very good. But like they're an attempt at something. They're an attempt at something. And they're and mm-hmm. if you take if you take art seriously, um, as containing within it this utopian surplus, as containing this potential, as containing this kind of like pure expression of, you know, human subjectivity, then yeah. You Watch the Soul Tangler, and you will you will see something of yourself reflected back in how you respond to it. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.